Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Kelly Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Antonio Fierro. Chief Impact Officer for Educator Preparation and Curriculum for the Barksdale Reading Institute. He is a former Texas State Teacher of the Year and member of the National Letters Cohort of Literacy Consultants. Dr. Fierro has contributed to several literacy curricula for English learners and has co-authored Kid Lips, a curriculum that teaches the phonetics of our language to young children. He is dedicated to early childhood education, phonology, research that impacts English language learners, dyslexia, and other reading disabilities. He sits on the board of the Reading League and the Southwest International Dyslexia Association. Welcome, Antonio Fierro. Thank you for being here today. (laughs) Dr. Shelley, thank you. It's great to be here. It's a joy. Thank you so much for the invitation. So excited. Me too. Can you start (laughs) by telling us how you got involved in literacy? Oh, my gosh. Um, Where do I start? Actually, you're not going to believe this. I actually got involved in literacy when I was in prison. And so now that I've caught everybody's attention, including yours, (laughs) I actually wasn't in prison per se. I worked at a prison facility. What a lot of folks don't know is that I used to be a federal agent with the Department of Justice. And, (laughs) right? (laughs) And I was uh, initially assigned to the FBI and ended my short tenure with the Bureau of Prisons. And so I come from a family of educators. I saw myself as an educator as young as, I think I was maybe like 11 years old when I was in in uh, sixth grade. And I remember listening, to, I think to, I think her name was uh, Mrs. Floodberg. And I loved Mrs. Floodberg, but that day she just wasn't on. I remember that. And I thought, Oh, man, I could have done a better job with that lesson. (laughs) But anyway, let me go back. Fast forward for uh, many, many years later, I was recruited by the Department of Justice after I graduated with my undergrad in business uh, management and marketing, had some uh, work also in human resources, and they were looking for bilingual agents at the time. So as I said, I began with the FBI and get assigned to Quantico and then found out before my last or during my last physical that I was colorblind. So I had already been accepted by the department. So I was then reassigned to the Bureau of Prisons. So I went to the academy, learned how to be a federal officer and agent and and so worked with the with the bureau. One day, the the warden approached me and said, "Our reading teacher is going on maternity leave, and she has to leave earlier. She had some complications." She said, "You're bilingual. Many of our inmates there at that facility, right side of Dallas, were Spanish speaking." And he said, "Can you work as a substitute until we hire a permanent teacher?" And I thought, "Well, geez, Louise, you know, 
I, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. What the heck, right? <laughs> so, and wouldn't you know it, that's where this whole process began. And I was in my late 20s and quickly realized this was my calling. I got trained in Wilson. Can you believe that? I got trained in Wilson. Because what happens with the federal system is that if the inmate is in the system in in prison and he or she does not have a high school diploma, the inmate has to go to school and get their GED. So what I quickly realized was that a large majority of the inmates were reading at about a second or third grade level. And that's where the hook began. And I just couldn't believe that. And I said, this is my calling. I fell in love with it started teaching reading without any kind of background. But like I said, I was I was trained in Wilson because I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do this and went back to school, got my credentials. And everybody thought, Dr. Shelley, everybody thought I was nuts because I, I'm leaving the Department of Justice and I'm going to become a teacher because that's what I want to do. And I mean, everybody thought I was I had lost it. But that was what I felt in my heart. That was my calling. So I left. I remember the last day was like on a Friday. Dallas had a shortage of teachers, bilingual teachers, early childhood teachers. And I got my credentials in early childhood as well. And so I remember being interviewed and my principal saying, what grade level would you like to teach? And I said, well, I'll maybe third grade, fourth grade. And she says, I have a kindergarten. No, I have a pre-K position that's available. And I said, yeah, I'll take third grade or fourth grade. She said, no, I, you know, I have this pre-K and, and you'd be a great uh, role model for the for the children. I said, yeah, I'll take third grade or fourth grade. She says, well, great. I'm going to offer you the job and you are our next pre-K teacher. So, <laughs> all right. So literally, Dr. Shelley, I went from uh, working with inmates on Friday to teaching three-year-olds, no, pre-Kers on Monday. And I swear to you, I was crying for my inmates. <laughs> Here I was working now with with young pre-Kers and even some three-year-olds in there as well. It was unbelievable. But anyway, and that's that's really how my journey began. I was trained, by the way, as a whole language teacher. And wouldn't you know it, everything just stacked up so beautifully. Because I remember my principal, she hired me because I was a man and I had early childhood credentials and she wanted a man as a role model for young children. But I remember during the interview, she said, so how are you going to teach kids to read? And Dr. Shelley, this was my answer. My answer was, I am going to read to them every day. And she said, okay. And how is that going to teach them how to read? Well, they'll see me modeling it. They'll see me holding the book. They'll see me reading. And, and when she pressed, when she pushed on, she said, and I will have uh, library centers, uh, lots of books available for my kids in my classroom. And that's how I'm going to do it. And she said, okay, I am going to teach you how to teach reading because she was a former reading specialist herself. And wouldn't you know it? That's how I was completely taken under her wing And she started teaching me about the components of language. We knew even then the importance of uh, absolutely of uh, phonology and phonological awareness. And she knew all that. And I was so, so thankful. I still stay in touch with her, which then kind of leads me, Dr. Shelley, to what the importance of having our educator preparation programs or our teacher preparation programs teach these fundamentals of, of reading. And I know, you know, we, we might be able to get to that later on, but it just, here we are after 30 years, I am now really 
so involved in trying to ensure that the science is being taught to our pre-service candidates. We have no time to lose. We have no time to waste. Our pre-service candidates must hit the road running day one. I'm convinced that that might be the reason, part of the reason, not the entire reason, part of the reason why we have such a large turnover with teachers. They get out to the system, are faced with the science, for example, and try to understand the science, and they have to be retooled many times or provided extra information or extra support to ensure that they are ready to rock and roll day one. They must understand the components of language. They must understand how not only the science of reading, but the science of teaching as well. And that is my drive to ensure that our pre-service candidates are ready to rock and roll day one. I made a huge jump from how did I get into literacy to now, you know, educated prep programs, which, uh, you know, which is what I'm, what I'm doing now and ensuring that we have that going on. Well, it was fascinating. I don't know anyone else in the entire world who went from working with <laughs> prisoners to pre-K students. Um, overnight. Uh, yeah, yeah. Over, yeah, overnight. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. I, it's the way it happened. And, But I'll tell you that it doesn't matter whether you're 30 years old, 40 years old, or you're five years old, 10 years old. Once you break the code, that's it. I will never ever, ever justify that being illiterate is going to, that's the reason why you you turn to a life of crime. It makes it very difficult, however, being unable to read, being able unable to comprehend, to process that print. I had grown inmates. I mean, you're in a federal system for a reason. And one of the things that I never, I never looked up their history. I don't, didn't want to know why they were there. They were there. And that's the, that's it, bottom line. But to have these, these men actually laugh, actually smile, laugh, and feel like they have accomplished greatness because they were able to decode, I can't explain it. Now, that was in the classroom. Now, granted, when we were out in the, in the, out on campus and, and they saw me, I mean, it was just a straight gaze ahead. They would not, that would not acknowledge me, but that's, you know, that's what they needed to do to survive in the, in the system, in the environment of, of, a, of a prison. I saw firsthand what can happen when we have individuals who cannot read. And now also, mind you though, you know, it's just funny how everything kind of works out because if I knew then what I know now, obviously, I mean, I would have done so much more. It became also painfully obvious afterwards that most of these inmates had a reading disability. Something had happened. So when we were taught to teach phonemic awareness as like the, the precursor, the warm up to Wilson. I had no idea why, but I, just, I was just doing it because I didn't understand the science. There was really, I didn't have any of that background. But now that I think about it, how much they struggled with phonemic awareness. So it doesn't matter whether, whether it's a young child, it's middle school, high school, an adult, if there is a reading disability, especially these character, the characteristic of dyslexia. We need to start at the foundational area, and that's why phonemic awareness is so incredibly important. And we must continue ensuring that we move to a level of advanced phonemic awareness early so that there are perhaps those predispositions, dyslexia, that we hit it when we hit it early. And speaking of dyslexia, I'm going to kind of kind of now move over to another area. My son has dyslexia. The dyslexia gene runs, it's very prevalent on my wife's side of the family. 
So the lesson learned, Dr. Shelley, is that if anything ever goes wrong, you blame your spouse. <laughs> you blame you blame your spouse inside of them. <laughs> that works the opposite way is that they're blaming you, uh, or at least my husband blames me. So you know, it's, it's a, you won't believe what your son or your yeah, exactly daughter right. Done. Yeah. So, yeah, it works both ways. Yeah. Yep. So I think my mother-in-law has, I think, seven grandkids. I think that's what we're, I think in total, and I five of them have dyslexia. My wife has dyslexia, but a, a very slight, it exists along a continuum while my son is pretty severe. So Texas has over a thousand school districts. So in order to ensure there's communication between our education department in Texas, Texas are called, it's called the Texas Education Agency, TEA. So to ensure there's communication between TEA and the local school districts, the, the state is divided into 20 regions. So I was the director of, of reading for Region 19 years ago, before I was married and before, obviously before I had, we had Antonio, my son. So I just remembered all the, all the pain that I saw in, in my inmates and especially started learning more about dyslexia. We had started, we had kicked off the Texas Reading Academies that gave me an opportunity to learn more about the science of reading, to learn more about dyslexia. And I felt that we needed to move ahead. So isn't this ironic? I had not met my wife yet. Obviously, did not have Antonio. And so I said, we are going to introduce all the concepts of identifying dyslexia, working with children with dyslexia, the assessment, the, the curricula, everything's dyslexia, right? And began that process across uh, Southwest Texas. It included about 12 districts and also brought in Wilson and additional training for dyslexia coaches, worked with the districts to help implement uh, more of a dyslexia awareness and train coaches and such. Wanted to know it that, you know, then I meet my wife a couple of years later, three years later, we have Antonio. And then about Three years after that, we started seeing the red flags. And so ironic, right? I mean, how everything kind of just falls into place. So ironic. That dyslexia program, that dyslexia awareness, that dyslexia training that right into El Paso, my son was to partake of it later on. So he actually benefited from teachers who were trained in dyslexia and coaches who were just trained in dyslexia. All of this, when it comes to literacy, it has tugged at my heartstrings my entire life, at my entire life. And I think that's why I'm so dedicated and so passionate about ensuring that not only our programs representing the science, but more importantly, that our workforce, our colleagues are well-trained in the science and understand how language exists. You know, language is such a wonderful thing. And when you look at a word, a word has a story to tell. Every single word out there has a story to tell from a phonological standpoint or an orthographic standpoint, you know, meaning, syntax. It's got a story to tell. And kids are curious. They want to know about those stories. And the way we tell those stories is by being well-versed in the elements of our language, in the elements that make up you know, the science and what we know has been proven to work. And that's what we must continue doing, not wasting our time on, on philosophies or beliefs that, that just, ah, <laughs> that drive me nuts. And I'm very passionate about that because I think about my son's journey and think about how sometimes he had, he didn't have the support that he needed. 
Why? Because the folks who were working with him were not knowledgeable or did not believe in, in the science. I'm like, why? How do you deny the science? Now, mind you, though, if you're trained like I was, you know, what happened with me, Dr. Shelley, is that, you know, here's this principal who says, oh, no, Antonio, that's not how we're going to do it. I'm going to teach you about being explicit way before I even knew what explicit meant, right? <laughs> You know, how to work systematically way before I knew what that meant as well. That knowledge base to ensure that we can maneuver through whatever obstacle comes along the way, because every what every kiddo is different. You know, you'll have issues with like kiddos with dyslexia and English learners, for example. But it is up to that knowledge base that we contain, that we possess, that's going to make the difference. Now, as I was saying, though, my pathway was blocked immediately by my principal who said, no, we're going this other route. What really becomes a, a challenge though, is when you have been practicing incorrectly for years and you own this methodology that is ill-conceived perhaps, but you, you own it. So it does take some time to meet up with that cognitive dissonance and then figure out that oh my gosh, maybe I have been doing it incorrectly. And you realize I have been. And then and then comes the guilt as well that, oh my gosh, how have I impacted all these lives? And it's not, it hasn't been in a positive way. Well, not entirely, but you know, my only take on that is that now that we know better, we have, we can do better and we need to continue moving. So it does take some time to that period of grief, right? As, as you're getting rid of, of old methodologies and old beliefs and now taking on the science. And that's what in Alabama, that's what we're seeing a lot of with the letters sessions that have been going on. I'm so proud of the administrators who have gone through the letters training, incredibly proud of the professors who have attended these sessions. And so you have a doctor, you know, you have these, this DR, you know, or that PhD, EDD, Okay, it just means that that we were tenacious, right, Dr. Shelley? That we just Absolutely. stuck to yeah. it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it really doesn't mean nearly as much as we want it to be. Yeah, you know, we're we're learners, and that's the bottom line. We are learners, and we continue learning, and we continue growing. And you know, when I think about the Texas Reading Academies that began here twenty years ago here in Texas, and and now with the science, it, we have grown so much, we have learned so much along the way, and just so lucky that that we have had scientists who have really stepped up to the plate and made a lot of this, uh, a lot of what they've they've researched now relevant and, you know, shared it with us like Dr. Dr. Motes. I mean, wow. What can you say? I mean, Dr. Moat, uh, Marilyn Adams. Oh my God. Claude Goldenberg, who's my hero when it comes to working with English learners. And that's my other passion, you know, working with, with English learners as well. And, you know, what I have found is that there's still some resistance. We all learn to read the same way. But I think that the field of English learners has not been introduced to enough of the science over time. And I think there's some real confusion out there from the sense of, and this is my quest, to ensure that our teachers who work with English learners understand there's a difference between second language acquisition and reading development. And sometimes the water gets muddied. And we think that as children acquire a language that they're also acquiring literacy. Well, that's not true. 
And I can immerse the child in English. I could have English language development classes for that child as well, or children. And they start learning. They start acquiring the second language and they start generalizing and, and hypothesizing. And, and I get that. And that's language acquisition. And we celebrate it. And yeah, we have these celebrations because they're using the language. The issue or the real challenge is that reading development is not occurring at the same rate. And and especially if the or the student, the English learner already has a good background in their native tongue, can read and write in their native language. That's great because some of those skills will, will transfer. But just like those skills transfer, some skills also get in the way and they hamper that reading development. So, you know, I'm asked often, what about our English learners? Do they need, is there a different science? It's the same science. The brains are the same. The brains are the same. If you go back and you look at the uh, National Literacy Panel on Language Minority and Youth, Language Minority Children and Youth, that National Literacy Panel on Language Minority Children and Youth, I think that's a complete name. That's That's a mouthful. Their report came out shortly after the National Reading Panel report. And in a nutshell, it said that our English learners need those five components of, of literacy that were identified by the national, uh, national reading panel, but with adjustments. The adjustments have to be that children have to understand what do I mean by a phoneme or what do I mean by a sound or what do I mean by syllables? So that means that, it, so, you know, the same strategies that you use with children with limited vocabulary are absolutely essential for our English learners. So we use manipulatives. We use lots of manipulatives. We go back and we explain many times over. We have opportunities to, for practice and we have lots of opportunities for oral discourse. That's so important. So not only am I teaching these aspects of literacy or, you know, or structured, structured literacy, but we're also having children talk about it. And we're having children share what they learned or repeat after me. So a lot of the, I do, we do, we do, we do, we do. And then a lot more, you do, you do, you do, and try it again. And then go back the next day and review it again. And lots of opportunity for review. So the reading skills that are needed and, and, you know, the other thing that muddies up the water a little bit also, Dr. Shelley, and I'm not sure, you know, we have that situation in Alabama, but there are many programs that are out there or different methodologies of uh, working with English learners, like bilingual education or dual language classrooms, stuff like that. Of course, I mean, I'm an English learner myself, English, Spanish, I, I wholeheartedly support bilingualism. So I'm all for children being bilingual or trilingual. I'm all for that. And we need to ensure that we leave no stone unturned, especially if children are coming from a very shallow orthographic system or transparent, really, like Spanish or French, for example, Italian, and now coming to a, a very deep or opaque orthographic system. So sometimes my, my colleagues think it's very romantic that skills transfer over, and they do. Yeah, absolutely. But as I mentioned earlier, sometimes they get in the way. And sometimes there aren't any skills, uh, those, that, that certain set of skills in, in the native language that can transfer over. Like if we take, think about phonology, I've done a lot of comparisons between English and Spanish, for example, but take the same consideration regardless of the child's native language. Spanish, for example, well, English has 44 sounds, right? 44 phonemes. Spanish only has half as many. So 
that means that I have to be very explicit in the teaching of any additional phonology and use manipulatives and use lots of explanation. I need to, as what I said before, I need to make sure that I review, make sure that they practice and go back and you know continue working with the English learner. The, the other thing that I want to say about English learners, though, is that sometimes we have a tendency to place all English learners under one neat little umbrella. That cannot happen. You know, it just can't happen. Every child comes with his own, his or her own set of strengths and and then areas that need additional support. So we cannot think about the English learner as one nice little umbrella. We need to think about also, where are they as far as that language acquisition, right? I mean, we have to be aware, are they in that pre-production stage? Are they in that early production stage? And how much opportunities do I give them to be immersed in the language. I, my good friend and colleague, Judy Dotson, says we've got to bathe the kids in language. Absolutely, especially for our English learners, but really any child who has limited limited vocabulary. Wow. Lots of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and I feel like I know some about that, having worked with English learners in a couple of different districts, but there's really a lot of misconception about this area. And a lot of just unknowns. And so uh, I'm thinking that is an area that we need a lot more teacher prep and knowledge in. I wholeheartedly agree. I think what I'm what I what I'm seeing now that I'm working with educator prep programs across the country is that the way that we prepare our teachers who are going to be working with English learners, that much of the preparation is around language comprehension, vocabulary, right? Background knowledge. And, I, and, and that's very important. I will never take that away from, from that. I mean, that's, that's crucial. But, you know, when we think about the conceptual models of reading, simply stated, the simple view of reading, or even, or even Scarborough's rope model, that's how we need to be looking at our instruction through the lens of one of these models. Choose your model. You know, they, they they tell us the same thing. They were just published at a different time. So the simple view of reading, you know, serves as that, as that foundation. And when I tell my professors, and, and really, and, and also really to anyone, is that these conceptual models of reading, like the simple view of reading, Scarborough's rope model, allow us to organize our instruction and allow, especially our pre-service candidates, for example, allows them to organize their learning. So they become more aware of where does this approach fall in or why, or if I'm doing a lot of, a lot of vocabulary instruction, well, that's great. I'm talking about the language comprehension domain of either the simple view or Scarborough's road model, but what happened to the rest? So with teachers of young, younger children, obviously it is to organize their teaching. It's to organize, am I, hitting everything that I need to hit, especially in, in the early grades. Am I doing, am I really rocking it when it comes to phonological awareness? Am I really moving into the areas of phonemic awareness early enough or solidly and, and you know, giving them lots of practice in the earlier grades? You know, when we were working, when I was working with pre-K teachers, not teachers, I'm sorry, my pre-Kers, uh, I remember Ms. Garza, my principal, teaching me to work with syllabication. I wanted kids needed to understand how this this word was broken up into syllables. I never had a, a deep understanding of how this would work over time. But it was now that I think about it, I mean, that's great. We're 
pre-K and working with, with syllables, syllable awareness. Holy smokes. We used to do the syllable cha-cha. Um, and I won't, I won't show it to you. <laughs> the syllable cha-cha was a lot of fun. I'll take uh, a on that later. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> Once we have a webinar. So, <laughs> uh, but it was getting them ready to move into the areas of onset rhyme for real more of an orthographic uh, awareness, but definitely into phonemic awareness in kindergarten. I encourage, whether it's a teacher, a faculty member, administrators, anyone, that when it comes to reading and to get things properly aligned, you need to look at them through the lens of these conceptual models and understand and be diagnostic. It allows us to organize our learning or our teaching, our learning as well, but also allows us to be more diagnostic in nature. And now I have a lens that is based on the science. And, and I think that was probably when I began my training and my learning, I was so lucky that I began early in my career. I've been working with Dr. Motes and my dear, dear colleagues at the national level for, oh gosh, I guess about 20 years now. And it, was, it wasn't until Dr. Motes started talking about the elements of language that it really started making sense. And then we got introduced to the, the conceptual models of reading and you know, it's like, oh, okay, that just, and it just fell into place. And it's so important. That's why I say that to my professors for your pre-service candidates, they need to understand how to organize their learning. And these conceptual models will also help them organize their learning. For our teachers though, while working with young students, um, it, it definitely organizes their instruction. That's just a great insight because there are these models and thinking about ways to organize our own learning and right. and then to look at how students can use that model as they're learning. Right. So right. it's right. um and, and then the diagnostic aspect of it is just really yeah. a very interesting thing that I haven't really thought about. You and I have talked a lot about the mindset for change and how hard it is to change things, especially when you've done it for a long time. What can you tell us about that process of changing what you're doing to serve kids better and how leaders and all of us can help with this process? Yeah, and it is it is a process. You know, uh, as I mentioned, I've been I've been teaching now, what, 25 years, 30 years, something like that. You know, I was part of that movement of the Reading First movement because because Texas began the Reading First movement back when President Bush was our governor. And it was the Texas Teacher Reading Academies that served as the model, the national model for, for Reading First. So those uh, academies were 20 years ago. And so and then, you know, we had the movement at the national level. So I've seen some change. Change takes a while. And but it's it's happening. And I think this here within the last few years, especially with the science, which has really been the psychology of reading, which has been what we've been talking about all these years, really finally taking a stronghold. And thanks to uh, really what Emily Hanford did a few years ago, uh, bringing it out for the public to to see what was going on in the area of, of literacy, for example. You know, it takes so many different entities. I have to also talk about just real quick and going going thinking about the change. Mississippi had the largest reading literacy gains in the country back in 2019. And that was not an overnight success by any stretch of the imagination. It really, they went through the process as well. But I'll tell you, 
I think what really drove that change was that everybody was on board. We are talking the State Department. The State Department uh, being led by knowledgeable literacy coaches, a literacy director, Kimiana Burks, I think was the, was the, uh, the literacy director at the time, but it's still continuing. So the State Department kept a vision of ensuring that student success, especially in literacy, was at the forefront. In-service teachers then were trained in the science through letters. Pre-service candidates also went through that. University faculty, in fact, I had a cohort, and that's how I got involved in Mississippi, gosh, probably about seven or eight years ago. But I am still, matter of fact, I meet with my university cohort professors by yeah, cohort of professors next week. So I taught about 40 professors in the science, and I have to commend my colleagues who said, yeah, I have a PhD or EDD, those little letters after my name, and I don't get it. And to say, I don't get it, but need to learn and, and I'm willing to learn is just such a gift. And I love them dearly, deeply. I will go through anything with them because of their commitment to excellence. So again, State Department, in-service teachers, pre-service teachers, university professors, and administrators. Oh my gosh, these are five entities that all came together to ensure that change took place. And we're, we're still not done. And now we're hoping that Alabama takes that, what we learned in Mississippi, and replicates that as well. And although I am very biased, Dr. Shelley, you know that I Letters is the gold standard. And although there are others, I'm not, you know, I, I will not deny there are others. P, there are other PD sessions out there. I can't talk about them specifically. I know of them, seen bits and pieces of them. I'll tell you that when you have a team of great authors like Louisa Modes and Carol Tolman and, and my colleagues and, and yours truly who have served as, as advisory board members. And then the team of national trainers now that what has expanded to a large cohort now, um, there's a lot of knowledge and there's, you know, we go on, we continue with our, our training. It takes time though. Anyone who's out in the field who does not understand the science might find it threatening. But I say there is safety in numbers. More of our colleagues, Dr. Shelley, are understand now the importance of being just just wicked smart. We just have to be wicked smart, right? I mean, let's call it what it is. We have to be wicked smart about how we teach our kids. And who can deny that? I want to be wicked smart. Do you? I absolutely aspire to that. Um, and always think that by being around other people who are wicked smart, then I have a better chance of achieving that goal. Right. Uh, yep. You know, you mentioned that process with Mississippi and NAEP scores. And uh, there was recently an article, I'm going to have to go back and find it and send it to you. But it basically said that a lot of states saw that and mm -hmm. decided they wanted to do the same thing. And they didn't have all the pieces together. And so it's not going to work as well when you don't have all of right. the different pieces together. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me give you some, some, share some, some exciting news on the forefront there. 
there are six states that are part of a multi-state initiative that is led by Bartsdale. Kelly Butler, who's the CEO, has been the, the visionary, the mastermind behind this whole plan. So Bartsdale teamed up with the Hunt Foundation and the, um, the Belk Foundation as well to support states as they are looking at improving their educator preparation programs. And a shout out to Colorado, Arizona, Missouri, Massachusetts, Ohio, and North Carolina for breaking the mold and saying, we need to ensure that our pre-service teachers are, or pre-service candidates are wicked smart, right? When it comes to the science. And so it's my understanding that there's another cohort that is now being uh, envisioned. So maybe Alabama can be a part of that. But I'll tell you, though, kudos to Alabama, because we are part of a review team to review course syllabi across 26 universities and colleges in the state of Alabama. So they're going through a review. Notice I said a review, not an evaluation, nothing. It's a review. We need to know where we are. And I think Alabama, you know, it's very similar to Mississippi. That's what Mississippi did as well conducted some reviews to look at the state of educator prep programs across the state. So kudos to Alabama. I mean, you know, so I have, we have universities who are opening up and opening up their doors and saying, yeah, you're going to be reviewing our, our program. Here's the information. I have Auburn. My team is looking at Auburn, Auburn University at Montgomery, Judson, Miles, Tuskegee, University of West Alabama. Those are some that are coming to mind because I'm part of my team. So we look at syllabi, assignments, what else, exams. We get to review and uh, interview faculty members. And you know what's really, and deans and, oh my gosh, department heads. I mean, it's just, it's just super incredible. It's great. And, and for the first time, I have, we have professors who are saying, oh, we're going to tape ourselves, we're going to video ourselves teaching, and you're going to give us feedback. How cool is that, right? Yeah, <laughs> How cool is that? Considering, you know, typically higher ed has been resistant to, to change. And so that is amazing. Well, kudos to uh, Alabama's literacy plan or literacy act as well. So, so how how cool is that? I mean, you're right, Dr. Shelley. We we never really included universities and colleges in the in this process of improvement, and now now we can. Or Alabama is, and they're a huge part of it. Absolutely. You've worked as part of the national letters team, and you've talked about what a, a great PD. It's the gold standard. Anything about just the depth of the training as opposed to other offerings. And I know you don't want to speak to, to anything else, but just the change in people and their practice when you learn something at such depth. Great question. It is, it's across the board. We've had teachers who are like, hmm, you know, they're mulling over the the, the information. Uh, I don't know. While others are like, oh my gosh, this is like the, the skies have cleared. I I get it. Now I know which path. While others will, who have a strong backing and or, you know, the three queuing system or balanced literacy is like, you know, where does this fit in? So an incredible depth. Some teachers compare it to graduate work. and But I also say though, Dr. Shelley, I, I say, you know, be kind to yourself. You know, I don't know about you, but as I get older, I need to hear things over several times. So don't think that because you've gone through letters that you, that's it. I have 
colleagues out in the field who have listened to me teach items. One of them, one of my colleagues from not far away from here, from New Mexico, she was telling me, do you know, Dr. Fierro, I have heard you address this topic 10 times. And each time I learned something new. And I wonder, why didn't you say that the previous time? It's like, well, I probably did. It's processing this information. And now she's training to be a national letters trainer as well. So, so be kind, be gentle to yourself in the sense of this is deep. And if anyone says, oh, okay, one time is enough, eh, wrong answer. It is not enough. You go back. I mean, how many times have I listened to Louisa Motes talk? How many times next week I'm inviting Marilyn Yeager Adams to be my guest host with my uh, Mississippi professors? How many times have I heard Marilyn? Cause she's, she's, I love her. You know, we just be be kind, be gentle because we need to hear it again and we just need to strengthen our understanding. The first time may not it may not have solidified or the mental model was such that mm, all right, you hear it again and now your mental model becomes stronger and before you know it that mental model is just like hopping. You get it. You can explain it and you can also see it in in your instruction. So be kind continue, go back and, and review, continue, you know, you go back, you have the opportunity to take letters again, take it again. Uh, we have to continue growing. And that's because why? Because we need to be what? Wicked smart. <laughs> I may have to have a t-shirt made up for us. Uh, even I can wear them together. Um, so you're currently working for the Barksdale Institute in Mississippi. So mm-hmm. Alabama based the Literacy Act upon the work in Mississippi. What are some lessons that you could share with us after You've seen the work has been going for a couple of years there. Yeah. You know what? Stay the course. Stay the course. And it actually has been going on for more than a couple of years. It's it's at least six, six, seven, eight years. It's been a while. So stay the course. I will give you know credit to Mississippi Department of Ed. They kept the course. They kept the vision on that target and did not sway. And that's what's important. Do not sway. You're doing letters. My recommendation is to continue doing letters. It is the gold standard. And if you're, if the state is going to provide that backing, I'm biased. But I'll tell you though, you've got the best. So why deviate? I'm not saying you are. I'm just, just state. And when I say, you know, keep the course, I'm talking about, you know, keep that course, keep, keep that PD keep letters, get your administrators involved, get your, you know, already you have some faculty members who are, who have been trained and we need to ensure that the, the Alabama State Department of Education continues supporting and keeping the course. Thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate what you are doing and have done with literacy for both students and teachers. It's been a joy. I'll tell you nothing better. There isn't anything better out there. I think being a teacher is a calling. It's a gift. And we are able to to share all this knowledge because we're wicked smart with all our kids. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast.